Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My name is Keith. No. It's anonymous. My name is Keith, and I'm a sexaholic. And I'm really grateful to be uh, alive and sober and here. Um, my sponsor told me that I should introduce myself by um, saying that I want to smoke a cigarette and have sex with my wife. I told him I didn't really want to do that. I mentioned it to Kelly, and she said she thought it'd be funny. Um, and as I was thinking about it, and I talked to my sponsor again just this evening um, before this, I told him that, and um, he said again that he thought it would probably be the way to start out being honest. You know, as an addict, I have a problem being honest. You know, um, and he didn't care if it was funny or not. He just thought it was more important that I be honest. And I thought, you know, I wonder. It's it's really amazing how many times in my life I sat out and I have these plans and ideas, and I mention them to my wife and my sponsor and other people in my life. And how many times they veto them? You know, they're like, Keith, that's not really a good idea. I think you should do this. And um, you know, so that um, I'm really nervous. And I need to say that too. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, I I've been thinking about how to incorporate my story and and the promises because always before, whenever we've talked or done or I've done any talks myself, I've always, you know, it's just been my story. You know, I'm just Keith sexaholic. I don't ever have a topic. You know, just just talk. You know, fill up 40 minutes, fill up 50 minutes, whatever. You know, and. Um, and so I asked my sponsor again, and, and this is a big theme in my life, is that I asked for direction today. And part of that is the reason why the promises are coming true in my life. You know, I used to not ask for direction, or, or I would, um, <laughs> I like to say that the first years in the program, I took probably about one out of 40 suggestions. You know, I'd call people and I'd ask them a question or something and they'd give me a suggestion and, and 39 of those suggestions I throw away automatically and one that seemed like it wasn't that tough I do and today you know it may be three out of ten so it's, I'm not there I'm not at a point where I'm, I'm entirely recovered but I'm like um, I'm at a point where I'm, I have more willingness today than I ever have and I'm really grateful for that um, the nature of my addiction is compulsive masturbation, fantasy, and pornography. It's very boring. Um, most people who come into Sexaholics Anonymous have acted out in more extreme ways than I have. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's funny that the reason why I'm here is because I tried harder than most people to quit acting out with less success than most people have. Um, I tried every way I could possibly imagine, and I, I it, it didn't slow this disease down at all. You know, it didn't. I mean, it didn't even make a dent. It just 
it is, I mean, you know, I guess it's kind of like jumping off a cliff and, and trying to, you know, flap my arms. And for some reason, it just didn't slow me down, you know. And um, at some point, um, you know, in um, August through September 2002, there were pretty tough times in my life. And um, I, um, I, was, I was beat by this disease. My ego had a hole punched in it. And it's just enough to let God in, you know. And I didn't, I don't even understand this God thing, but it's just enough to let this power greater than myself in that has given me some freedom from acting out. Um, now, you know, this whole thing with my, my, you know, my story is, um, they have interesting connections with Colorado. Um, some of the worst years of my life are spent in Colorado. Um, you know. <laughs> uh, I lived in Durango. I think it's '84 and '85. I I lived in the Springs, or well, the residence was actually in the Springs, and I was detained in in um, in, um, in Pueblo in the state hospital in '86. And my 16th birthday, I actually got to spend in that facility, in the maximum security facility that they had there at the time. I didn't even know if it's still open. That's been some years, and I know a lot of that stuff goes away. So I've had some fear and trepidation, too, about coming back to Colorado. We came back for um, nine years ago, probably, and visited my sister. Um, but in the promises, you know, it talks about this. And, and I was told to go through these. And, and I guess if I just tell my story, it's probably going to get them all blurred up and mixed up. You know, and it says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Um, Nine and a half, step nine and a half. You know, um, that's where, before we were halfway through, because we're talking about the ninth step in the big book on page 83. And, you know, before we're halfway through, and I can tell you I'm on step nine and a half. This is what my sponsor told me. I'm a slow step worker. I don't suggest it. But um, just last week, I went and did, did the amends with my grandparents on my mom's side. My other, my grandparents on my dad's side are deceased, and, and I, they haven't come up in any step work. I didn't really know them that well. Um, I resented that grandma and um, was grateful that she lived long enough to treat my wife respectfully. And that eased a lot of those resentments, and I don't have any amends. But with my grandparents on my um, mom's side, I had some amends to make to them. And I was able to go up. And one of the things that, um, you know, we will not regret the past, you know, or we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness is the next promise. Um, all the amends I've made to people, right? Something happens. I don't feel any magic at the time. You know, I went and talked to my grandparents and sat down. It was nice, you know, and this and that. I hadn't seen them for a couple of years, even though they only live, you know, 15 miles from me. But it always had this shame, you know, of going around them. So I made these amends to my grandparents. And I've made amends to one of my sisters and my one of my brothers and, you know, um, Kelly and the kids. And the amazing thing about a lot of these resentments that are these amends that I've made with these people is that, when I'm around these people, I have a freedom that I don't have with the people I haven't completed this step with. It's an amazing thing, you know, that like with my brother, that 
I owed money to because I was not managing my affairs. I was acting out instead of working. And then I had a hard time supporting my family. Um, <laughs> so I'd call my brother, hey, I need some money to pay my, as we were separated, and um, I needed money to pay my child support and, um, you know, and stuff like that. And I, you know, made those amends back to him. And, and I have a great relationship with him. And my sister that lives in, in Nashville, actually, when we went there, I got a chance to make amends to her. Um, for some stuff that happened in Durango where I chased her with a machete. And now it's like, uh, when I think about her and when I talk to her, um, it's it's just really at ease. It's at peace. It's like, this is okay. You know, um, I don't have that fear hanging over, over my other sister who actually lives in, spring, in the springs here. I haven't had the opportunity to. Um, you know, and that's that's really difficult. And I pray that the opportunity will will come up with her. Um, now it says that we will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. Um, this is one of those promises that has, to the most part, come true to me. Um, sometimes it took um, um, in the other fellowship in AA. I attended AA for. 14 years before getting sober in NSA. For, um, and in that fellowship, I went to a lot of low-bottom meetings because I related with the, the guys that had just got out of prison and the guys that had done that because of my experience of being, being locked up in different psych wards. And I wasn't locked up in psych wards because, I mean, I was nuts. Okay, well, that's a pretty, pretty fair statement. But I was um, locked up in psych wards because I was criminally nuts. You know, I was a danger. And it wasn't like I had... Um, and so I related with these guys, but for years I would never talk about this experience. I would never talk about the fact that I had spent a year of my life in psychiatric units in, at, you know, in the state of Colorado. Um, so there was a big portion of my story that I just wouldn't share. And in working this step, I talk about it now in meetings when it's appropriate, whether it's an SA meeting or an AA meeting or whatever meeting I'm at. If it seems appropriate, it's on topic, I'll talk about it because it's part of what I've gone through. It's part of my life. Um, you know, some of the things when, um, like when Kelly and me have conversations and stuff, sometimes, um, I don't know if it's that I regret the past. It's sometimes I wish I hadn't had to been such a jerk and, and hurt so many people so bad to become teachable, you know. And I don't know if that's regretting the past. It's just like, you know, I'm grateful for where I'm at. I just wish it hadn't cost so many other people so much, you know. Um, and, you know, that's something I work on on a daily basis. And part of my amends to um, my family, my wife and my kids, is uh, um, actually um, not sitting down and going over every crappy thing that I did to them my whole life because, I mean, there's a ton of them. And I don't always know when people like my children or my wife are willing to sit down and listen to this list, you know. But being willing to listen to them when they want to talk about the stuff that I've done, you know. Like um, our son, um, I attempted suicide in a garage on his eighth birthday. Well, when do I bring that up to him? Or do I just say, okay, he's going to remember it. And when he brings it up or the family brings it up, hey, Dad, do you remember the time the police and the ambulances and... All those people were over. You know, do I listen to them or just shut them down? You know, that's part of the way. You know, and that's another thing with not regretting the past, just letting them talk about it and say, you know, 
my deal. Um, the next one here. Uh, we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Um, I used to think I knew what peace was. You know, um, I think that did the did the, did the thing say ninety or ninety nine? Because we got here in ninety nine. Okay, and um, I know we'd go to meetings and we, I'd talk at meetings and this and that, and and, and um, I'd talk about every subject that was ever under the moon, and, as if I was the end end all and ultimate authority. And thank God, some of my friends in, in SA um, are crossovers too. And they've attended meetings with me in AA. And they attended meetings with me in SA. And they finally told me, shut up. We don't want to hear what you're saying. Because you're not living it. You know, and I'd talk about knowing serenity. I had no idea. I thought I knew what serenity was. Serenity was that kind of oblivion that you get when you act out enough that you don't feel anything anymore. <laughs> you know? Um, you know, that's drunk, not serenity. And, you know... Today, serenity is being okay no matter what's going on. You know, it's like, okay, God. You know, and that's something I actually have to work at. <laughs> you know, I wish I could just like wake up in the morning and be like, okay, God, let's skip and dance through the day and I'm going to be okay. But oftentimes I happen to forget about God. It's just like not even there. And I'll get myself all disturbed and worked up and pissed off and... And life is just not going to work, and, and you know, this and that's going to happen. And I'll totally forget that God's there. And then I'll remember, okay, maybe I should say a prayer. My head will say, that isn't going to work. <laughs> Every time I think about praying, my head says it's not going to work. Every time I pray, it works. Uh, my head always tells me a lie, you know. And the serenity, you know, when we. Um, when I actually got sober, I thought our marriage was over. Um, Kelly had filed um, for separation, and and there was restraining orders and and different things there. And um, I had to appear in court and and do different things and pay um, huge amounts of child support, which my disease had actually re diminished my um, ability to earn an income, even in a very early sobriety. I, I wasn't earning as much as I had a several years before, so I was having a really difficult time. And um, this is the first time I ever actually got to know what peace was. Because it's like, that's okay. You know, I have enough today. It's okay. You're going to be okay, Keith. Just keep doing what you need to do. You know, and um, I, um, kind of a little side note, I um, was told by an old timer just you know, about a month or so before I got sober to, to um, get on a, um, an injection to help with this disease and I, I went ahead and did it and I went ahead and acted out anyhow on it and then I've, I've continued to take that medicine and I have guys call me this guy gives them my number and they call me and they they are looking for the magic bullet so to speak they want a medicine that will take care of this thing and I always tell them that in my first 30 days I was taking the shot going to counseling seeing my psychiatrist because he was kind of freaked out by the medicine that I was taking and go on to between two and five meetings a day. And I don't ever hear from them again. Um, because the, you know, they, <laughs> they want to, you know, most of us want this magic. And that's what I thought when I got the shot. I thought, ah, oh, 
this would be it, because I was looking for the formula to end this acting out, you know. I I was tired of the pain of acting out. Um, and I continued to act out, even on the shot. And, um, and I always think it's funny, because I'm really grateful that after I took that and went on the last acting out run that I went on, that I was actually willing and broken enough to go to two to five meetings a day. And it wasn't all SA meetings, it was other fellowships, because it's almost impossible to go to two, five, well, I don't think there's five SA meetings a day in any town in North America. Um, so, but, and that's part of the thing that during that first 30 days, too, I remember um, I was living in a part of Portland. Um, this, my sponsor that I had at the time told me, if you can stay sober living there, you can stay sober living anywhere. <laughs> And um, God kept me sober living there. You know, I lived there for a month, um, right in the crack section of town. You know, and when it was raining out, which it does, thankfully, a lot of times in the winter, that helped me a lot. And um, you know, that was, you know, September through October, still raining stuff. On the clear nights, the streets were really noisy. You know, when it wasn't raining, because the people were out in the streets, you know, getting their drugs and stuff. But um, somewhere in there. Um, one of the Sundays, I wasn't working, I wasn't doing anything, um, I had some laundry to do. I got up and I went to the 7 o'clock meeting, and then there wasn't another meeting. Uh, there was other meetings scheduled throughout the day, but not an essay meeting until 7.30 at night, our, our biggest meeting in the Portland area. And, um, and the amazing thing in that 12, 12 hours between those two meetings, I was okay. And it was the first time I'd ever felt okay. I, went, I was going to two to five meetings a day because I couldn't sit still. I was withdrawing from my drug, and my mind was going nuts, and I couldn't sit still. And the only place I felt comfortable halfway was in a meeting. But within that first 30 days, I started getting the freedom and the peace where I could sit there. And that really, do, I mean, laundry is not that challenging of a task, you know? <laughs> and um, sit there and do my laundry and clean up my room and I watched a little NASCAR and, and NASCAR is not that grabbing, gravitating to me. It's something I can, you know, kind of as background noise and just be okay. And what a miracle. I mean, that just being okay. And I tell people today, this is the reason why I come back. You know, I don't come back necessarily to stay sober. I have to stay sober to have that feeling. I come back because I want that feeling. You know, I want that serenity. I want to know peace. I want to feel peace. Um, at about two months sober, I think it was, um, our six-year-old daughter who had witnessed this um, this life that um, I had I had brought into our home, who um, her dad had wouldn't show up. At, you know, me, I wouldn't show up at home, or, or even after we were separated, I wouldn't show up at visitations and this and that. And she has some. Um, uh, probably kind of like her dad, she has some mental health issues, you know, and she snapped at six. Uh, some of it's biological, but a lot of it's situational. Um, and during that time, when we had to hospitalize her two different times, and we were separated, and... Um, I think the restraining orders, we thought they were lifted, 
I'm not sure they were 100% legally lifted at the time. We'd went to court, and they had been lifted, and I saw I could hang out with the kids or, or take the kids to doctor's appointments and do this and that. So I was able to, to go and, and, and be a part of that. And to watch her just lose it and be okay. And, um, you know, talk to my sponsor and go to my meetings and know, you know, this kid is going to be okay if I just, you know, this is going to be okay. I don't know. I didn't know really what's going to happen with her. I didn't know whether she's going to continue to slide downhill or whether her treatment or whatever would help. And, um, you know, so, but knowing that I'd be okay, you know, was okay. Um, the next promise is no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. Um, other than um, probably my favorite person in the world to talk to actually not probably realistically my favorite person in the world to talk to or listen to is Kelly other than that it's sexaholics you know I prefer to talk to sexaholics over alcoholics um, I kind of get nervous <laughs> I don't say this to people but when I meet people that I really like you know in the outside world I kind of wonder if I'm going to run into them in meetings sometimes. Maybe I should just slip them a brochure. <laughs> um, and the funny thing is, is we talk a language here that um, I haven't heard anyplace else. You know, I mean, I'm a construction worker. And, I mean, you hear all this sort of stuff on the jobs. We talk about the same sort of stuff to talk on construction sites, but we, in, a, in a form of language that's actually healing and healthy. And um, it's only here. You know, we go to church and stuff like that, and, and I'm sure if they heard my story, and our old church knew my story, our new church doesn't. I'm sure if they heard my story, they'd be like, well, that's kind of nice. Stay away from our kids, you know. It's only here that my story has really any value, you know. Out there, I mean, you know, people don't want to hear it. You know, people don't want to know the depths that my mind trolls. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't care. They just want to know that, okay, Keith, you're going to show up and do the job you're told to do, or you're going to pay your bills, or you're going to do all that sort of stuff. Here, when I'm talking to people, we had a newcomer come Tuesday night to our Vancouver meeting. And this is, um, you know, he shared, we, we, we did a newcomer breakout, and we talked about this and that, and, and at the end he asked a question. Um, and his question was, you know, and he looked at me and he said, is it possible to live without lusting. You know, I understood what he's talking about because I didn't believe it was possible to live without lusting. But I know today, and I could tell him with confidence, and the other guys in the meeting could tell him with confidence, it is possible to live without lusting. You know, um, and, you know, that, that, that comes from where I've been. That comes from not thinking, you know, I, you can't, I can't do this. I remember I used to call my sponsor, during the years of acting out, um, before he fired me. And um, I would call him and say, I just can't do this. And he'd say, I know. And if you just believe that, you'd be okay. You know? <laughs> it's just really frustrating. You know, I can't do this. Well, duh, you can't. Read the first step. Um you know, and, and so that, that, you know, that, that whole deal in knowing that, you know, a person, and, and I've heard people say this before, and I believe it's true that, that if I can be kept sober, there isn't any reason why no, everybody else can't be. You know, my story isn't that much worse, or, or I wasn't, you know, it's like, 
I listen to people in meetings and in sexaholics in a way that we think, and I know that if I can if I can be kept sober, then there isn't a, there isn't a sexaholic out there that can't be kept sober, and I believe that in the depths of my heart. And the other sexaholics I talked to, when I was um, I think my sponsor's fifteenth birthday when I was about nine or ten months sober, and I sat in that meeting, they gave him his chip. And they kind of did an AA style, you know, where they talk about the person. Most of our meetings, they just give you a chip and they don't talk to you. They don't congratulate you. They don't do nothing. You know, we're just like... But this meeting, they kind of did an AA style where the people would say, you know, the things that this guy had done for them or whatever. And um, and I got to thinking, that guy had been sober every day, one day at a time, for 15 years. And the thing I realized and I got in that meeting was that no matter what happens today, it can't be as bad as all those 15 years put together. Because a lot of stuff happens in 15 years. I mean, I'd been sober 9 or 10 months, and a lot of stuff had happened already. Uh, well, you you know, crunch that down into 15 years, there isn't nothing that happened bad enough that I have to act out today. Period. Um, you know, and I believe that still today. Um... That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Uh, again, you know, um, I don't know if it's quite the right word. I sometimes struggle with words. I'm not a, a big word guy. Um, but at times I feel like the work that we are doing, you know, each of us members of Sexaholics Anonymous are doing, is very important. And not only to me, I mean, I talk to people because it keeps me sober, but it's also important to life, to the general. I feel like there's value there. Um, I feel like, you know, that possibly, you know, I can be helpful. You know? um, I think in dealing with my children, I, I'm, you know, you know, that whole deal with, um, you know, I, I woke up one day and I had five kids, you know. I mean, it's kind of the way I feel, you know. I was there in a kind of a brownout stage for all those years, and it's like all of a sudden, and now it's like, and, and now it's like, okay, how do I be a dad? You know, how do I, how do I parent these children? And um, there's some value there. I mean, you know, it's pretty obvious there's some value there. Um, and I can only do that by, by being a member of, of Sexaholics Moms, by working this program, um, you know. And at work, you know, that I'm not um, drifting along, losing ground at work anymore. You know, it's, I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> I decided to start my own business and, um, and decide to see what God would do. Um, there's something, and as Bill sees it, where he, he's writing a letter to a guy who's going to try a new career, and I talked to my sponsor about it, and he says, as long as you're willing to try it, and it's just an experiment, you'll be okay. And I, So I've tried to live that, and, I, and for years I stayed in the same job with the same employer and going backwards because I was afraid that I wouldn't have enough money to act, you know, to act out. Well, towards the end of my disease, I wasn't carrying any money. If I had money, and then I'd go to the meeting, and I had seven tradition money in my pocket, and sometimes it'd be five dollars, and and because um, I was afraid of carrying money, no credit cards, um, and <laughs> I'd have the obsession to act out, and I'd call somebody, they say throw the money out the window, so I'd throw the money out the window, <laughs> right? 
And then I'd find myself stealing porn. And it's like, how does that work? You know, um, I kind of missed the whole thing of, um, you know, of um, surrender. You know, it doesn't matter how many dollars you throw out the window. If you don't surrender, you're right to act out. You end up acting out. <laughs> but that whole feeling, you know, and I feel like, like today more than ever before in my life, that there's value and meaning to my life. You know, um, there's a purpose for Keith to get up every morning. You know, and and to do his prayer and meditations, and to call his sponsor, and to go to work, and to do the best he can, and to come home, and to go to meetings, and to and to just be who who he is. And there's a and always before it felt like, you know, I was um, I mean I did attempt suicide. It was kind of a chicken chicken way of doing it. Um, it wasn't very serious, I, I, but I always wanted God to take me away. You know, I didn't want to actually have to do the dirty job of committing suicide, but I didn't want to live anymore either. You know, I was just like, this is too much. This is crap. There isn't no reason for me to be here. And today I actually feel like there's a reason to be alive. You know, I'm quitting smoking. I have been working on it for months. That's why I said I wanted to smoke a cigarette. Um, I have about three weeks without smoking. And I had 30 days before that, and then I smoked for eight days. Um, I'm doing kind of the same. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I, I wish I could learn this stuff and transfer it over from one problem to another, but it seems like I have to relearn it in each of the problems. Uh, <laughs> um, but one of the reasons why I want to quit smoking is because I want. I'm trying to tell my higher power that I want to live. You know, so I'm trying to do things in my life to say I, I care about my life. My life is important <coughs> to me. I want to live. So I'm trying to change my behaviors to express that. I mean, I don't know what, what God's going to say, but that's what I want to say. Whereas when I feel like I'm smoking and I'm doing all this other crazy stuff, I'm dumb, I don't really care. you know. And I'm also trying to have that message to my wife and to my kids and the other people that are around me, you know, that I want to be here. you know, I want to be a part of this thing. This is the cool show on earth, you know. Um, pretty much the only one life is. But... <laughs> Um, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. You know, um, you know, I, I really like, um, this one is partially true. I think sometimes, you know, um, a lot of times I get sidetracked and think that I need certain things and that's always selfish. Anytime I need something, it's selfish and self-centered. You know, and when I'm more interested in what I need than in what I'm getting or what God is going to give me, then I am, you know, not losing interest in selfish things and getting. I'm, I'm obsessing about stuff, you know. So I work on this one, um, you know, the whole thing of, of being, you know, thinking. And and there is a story in here, and I can't. You know, where she says at the end of her story that when she she does the stuff uh, the program she and I'm I'm terrible I read this book over and over and over two pages a day usually and and I cannot quote it I mean for nothing you know so it's not her lack of not reading it it's just for lack of the fact that it, this stuff for me is foreign and I, and I really struggle comprehending a lot of times you know some of the stuff will come through but a lot of times I, I lose it. But she talks about when she, when she, you know, seeks her power, her higher powers will, um, she gets what she needs, and then she finds out that what she needs is what she wants. 
And that's what I'm finding is true in my life too. That when I'm seeking, you know, okay, God, thy will not mind be done. Um, God provides what I need. And in the end, what I need is really what I want. You know, even though I didn't realize it. Um, so, um, the self-seeking will slip away. Um, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. You know, um, this one is kind of an interesting one. You know, my whole life, um, one of my friends in the program uh, used to tell me, aren't you getting sick of being the center? He's kind of rude about it, you know. Um, he's one of those crossover guys. He's got that AA in your face sort of mentality, you know. And, um, and he'd tell me that over and over and over again. Aren't you tired of being in the center? And my whole life, um, from the time I was a very little boy, you know, and 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 um, we. Um, we traveled around the country quite a bit, living in different places and this and that. And um, I always looked to get what I could out of each place that we lived in. You know, um, I looked to get everything that I possibly could out of that place. You know, if it was stealing money out of neighborhood cars, or if it was stealing porn from a guy that lived in a, and rented a room from a house, or you know, it was whatever. I took whatever I wanted. I tried. My life was all about getting what Keith thought he wanted all the time. That was that was the focus of Keith's life. I carried that through um, into our marriage, into absolutely everything that I did, my job, everything. It was all about getting what Keith wanted to get. Um, today, um, and this one here too, I spend time in prayer and meditation. Our whole attitude, not like my life. You know, today. My life is about accepting God's will for Keith, whatever it is that day, whatever it presents itself that day. You know, um, I make a lot of beautiful plans. You know, I sit down in the morning and I think about what's going to happen that day. You know, and I have all these ideas and schemes and plans that are good to go through. You know, and it used to really bug me when these would fall apart. Oftentimes, I leave the house at seven o'clock, and by five after seven, my plans for the day are scrapped. You know, now my job is to accept that and keep moving on. You know, and okay, I had all these plans. I told you what I wanted, God, and you're saying no. And um, that's how my attitude and, and you know has an outlook upon life has changed. Is that um, it's okay today if my life is flexible. It's okay today if the things, the beautiful plans that Keith creates, which you generally are not very beautiful, but they they look beautiful in my head. Um, um, if those um, go away and are replaced by something else. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. Um, the reason why I am nervous standing up here is because I'm afraid of what you guys will think about me. You know, that's true. Um, I have to surrender my right to worry about what people think about me. I've been told for a long time it's none of my business what anybody else thinks about you, Keith. I have a harder time practicing that than actually hearing it or saying it out loud. Um, 
And so the fear of people, and I'm less fearful of people today um, than I would have been um, some years ago. You know, the... Um, this is a, a the, and the economic in, insecurity will leave us. Um, it's kind of funny. We have this. Um, I have this project going on at work. Actually, I'm done at this project at work, and this lady owes me a substantial amount of money, and um, I've been attempting to collect it from her in in a way that doesn't cause me to have to make her amends. You know, that's kind of. <laughs> I hate making amends. Um, and it's been really amazing because um, sometimes it's come right down to the wire and I haven't known how I was going to pay my guys, the guys that work for me. Um, and then, like, the day before I have to have it paid, somehow some money will come through and God will take care of them and me. And through this experience, I'm beginning to learn that it's okay. You know, I'm going to be okay. My kids are going to be fed and clothed and housed. The people that work for me are going to be paid, and you know God's going to take care of it. And and then ultimately too, in the end, if the business fails, who cares? I just get a different job. <laughs> I was looking for a job when I got this one, and having that kind of outlook, um, you know, and it takes some work. You know, this whole program is about um, willingness to work these, you know, to practice these principles. Um, it takes some work to maintain that kind of attitude because sometimes I want to get really crappy and I want to want to fantasize about knocking this lady's house down, you know, and uh, go through those sort of things in my head and, you know, um, doing all that stuff. But, you know, as I pray about it and surrender it and actually look at what God is doing for me in my life, I'm okay. It doesn't matter, you know. It, if it... When and if, you know that happens it'll be nice but until that happens I'll be okay you know and um, and that's really nice to have that feeling you know um, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us twice in my sobriety I've um, went on to job sites and found pornography you know and um it's kind of funny because always before in the past that was a good reason to act out. Oh, God gave it to me. <laughs> um, you know, if God's given me porn, that's a pretty baffling situation. Uh, being as porn kills me. Uh, both of those times, um, I, I couldn't live with the porn there on the job site and work there for two weeks, you know, and have it there and not wonder you know so one time there was a couple guys there so I picked it up wadded it up with a try not to look at it and I took it to the to the super of the subdivision and I said you need to do something with this and I gave it to him that's intuitively I didn't even think about it it's just like there's a magazine I need to get rid of it because I can't have it hanging on because I'm allergic to this stuff you know scrunch it up hand it to the guy and um I knew he was kind of a religious guy, so I knew he would be kind of like, okay, you know, take care of it. Um, some guys you wouldn't want to do that with because they'd want to sit down and look at it with you. But um, that particular guy was okay. Um, and the time before that, um, actually we were going to be there for about a day or two. And I knew the garbage guy was going to come by. And I took it and I had a bunch of wrappers and I just shoved it into the wrappers and, put it, and then left the job. Um, 
that's one of the blessings of being self-employed is you can leave. <laughs> like, okay, the garbage guy is going to come by and he's going to scrap this thing out and I can just kind of float the schedule until that happens. And that was another way of, you know, okay, I intuitively know how to handle this situation. So used to baffle us because, um, you know, um, Then the other, though, we, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Um, I'm sober today. I've been sober, sexually sober, since September 24th of 2002. Um, if on September 20th, 30th even, or September whatever of 2002, 2003, you'd have told me that that'd be true today, I would have not believed you. I didn't believe that this program would work until we went to Nashville and we did a couples meeting. And um, I was terrified. <laughs> That's the point. I was so terrified. I blocked that out. I just like, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to think about it. We get into the room and I, we sit down at the table and I lean over and I say, Nancy, what's the topic? Because I totally like, just like, I wasn't going to deal with it. You know, it's just not going to deal with it. Um, and she told me the topic, and we talked. I don't remember what it said, and um, it went okay. And I left that room, and I realized, you know, um, before September 2002, people were telling me to shut up. You know, we don't, we're tired of hearing you talk, Keith. You know, you, you, you just need to start showing us. We don't care what you say. Start showing us. Um, and something had happened... And now people actually ask me to talk. And that's when I actually first began to realize that this promise was coming true. Because they didn't ask me to talk because I was a cool guy. They didn't even really know me. You know, um, you know, they asked me to talk because God is doing something for me that I couldn't do for myself. You know, the, the first steps is we're powerless and our life has become manageable. You know, I am powerless over lust. I cannot stop. I cannot stop masturbating. I cannot stop buying porn or looking at porn or doing all of that stuff. And, you know, I'm sober and free. And if that isn't a bigger example, you know, and the fact that we're married. <laughs> I was just telling Kelly we were walking around and I told her how grateful I was that we were able to be here together. You know, because that wasn't... That was not a very probable situation um, a few years back. <laughs> um, you know, and the thing that I realize about these promises, you know, that's, um, all of these promises is the fact that um, the reason why the promises are cool, the reason why the fact that they're coming true in my life is really cool, is because the depths of despair that I've got to experience. You know, um, I think there's people out there who are non-addicts. I believe they probably experience these promises without having to look the steps. <laughs> you know, so for them, it's no big deal. You know, it's like this is just the way life is. Um, we have friends, and we hear I hear stories about them and their behaviors and this and that, and things they do without even thinking about it and with absolutely no consequence. And I'm absolutely floored and amazed. You know, people live that way. And they stay connected to their higher power. You know, people can do things 
that I can't do. And um, one of the big things for me, too, is today, as a result of being beat up by this disease, I live by a certain set of rules. They're my rules. They're not Kelly's rules. They're not anybody else's rules. They're Keith's rules. You know, I don't drive down certain streets. It's a funny story about that. <laughs> um, I called my sponsor and was complaining about uh, I was being harassed by Kelly's sponsor and um, and Harvey, her husband. <laughs> and um, I called him and was harassing him because I'd stopped taking the medication um, at about seven or eight months and then I'd actually looked at porn and um, and they were wanting me to get back on the shot and I wasn't wanting to at that time and and um, I called my sponsor and um, was complaining about how rude these people from these old timers from Nashville were and um, he um, and then I, I happened to cast out the fact that I was driving past a video store and he called me back and he said whether you take any medicine or not, if you drive past those places, you know, or actually what he said, recovery will look like for you as if you're not driving past those places, you know. And he was very rude about it. He wasn't even very nice. He's usually generally a fairly nice sponsor. He likes to make fun of me. Um, but he's not generally mean like that. Um, so, you know, um, and knowing that, you know, then we get to the... Um, are these extravagant promises, you know? Um, the next line is the three words we think not, which we usually say in the meeting. You know, when the promises are read, most of the meetings I go to that read the promises, everybody, you know, says that, those three words, you know? And then it says they are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Um, I think that's kind of important. You know, in the fifth chapter, um, after some debate, Bill wrote, Rarely have we seen a person fail who certainly followed a path. I, according to the stuff I've learned, he wanted to say never, but it was changed to rarely. And there's other examples in here, and that's the most, but where they use a word that isn't, um, again, my language skills are failing me, but, you know, they use a word that leaves some room for wiggle, like rarely. You know, it, it's possible that one out of a million alcoholics fails after completing his 12 steps. That's what my mind interprets rarely as. Um, here, it says always. So they took an, oh, rarely, um, before the 12 steps. And at nine and a half, they're saying always. So, because if there's a one in a million chance that these aren't going to work, they won't work for me. You know what I mean? Because I'm always the exception. That's my life, <laughs> you know. Um, they'll always materialize if we work for them, you know. And um, what time is it? How much time? Um, you know, this is the this is the deal, and and I um a lot of the things that I like to talk about with people is um you know I, I have guys call and I talk to five or six drunks every day, sexaholics, and I'm really grateful for that it keeps me sober. You know, I talk to my sponsor, 
and I hear guys doing this, this sort of crap that I did to my sponsor. You know, I want this, and I, you know, I want to be sober, and I want to do this, and I want to, and I always ask them, what are you willing to do? You know, are you willing to get on your knees? You know, are you willing to call somebody every day? Are you willing to keep your hands above your waist no matter what happens? Are you willing to drive a mile out of your way? You know, are you willing? You know, and I ask them those questions because that's what it really boils down to. It doesn't boil down to wanting. I could want this thing and I wanted this thing all day long. I just wasn't ever willing to do anything for it, you know. And uh, the real point in life for me came where I got beat hard enough and I became willing enough to say, okay, I'll do whatever it takes, you know, and I, the guys laugh because my, my sponsor I have now fired me several months before I got sober. He's kind of nice about it. He said, if you're not willing to listen to what I'm telling you, you need to find a new sponsor. So I now I found a new sponsor and uh, he was exactly what God wanted for me at that time, right? And one of the things, and I, this is kind of funny, is people, um, um, I, he, he told me to, um, to wear welding gloves to bed at night. And, um, and I did. You know, and, and, um, and, and it's a funny thing, you know, that, you know, because they're, I mean, I'd wake up and, they, you know, they were, they were actually, they're kind of greasy. Yeah, really gross. <laughs> but I had reached a point in my life where I was willing to do absolutely anything if it helped me. You know, help give me a second to actually work my program because that's really what it takes for me. Is it takes a second. The thought comes in, I got to get it out. You know, it takes a second. You know, before you know. And um, I'm really, really grateful. Um, this is a beautiful facility. You know, I'm grateful that you guys asked us to come out. Grateful for the committee to you know put this thing together. You know, um, and um, I'm grateful that uh, I think my hour is done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.